Hi, I'm Josh, and this is the first episode of a podcast I'm calling Science Fiction Shorts. I'm going to read you some science fiction, maybe have a little commentary about it. You're going to tweet at me your own commentary, and maybe we'll all be entertained. Okay, this first short story that we're going to read is called The Brick Moon. It is by Edward Everett Hale. I originally thought it was written in 1899 because that's what the Gutenberg project has it at, but I think he republished it in 1899. Anyway, he wrote it originally in 1869, which is how many years after the Civil War is that? It was 1861 to 1865, so we're talking four years after the Civil War. So, you know, we're talking uh, gunslingers, cowboys, that type. Abraham Lincoln, well, a little bit after him, huh? Anyway, this book is cool. Sorry, it's not a book. It's a short story. This short story, I think maybe it'd technically be a novel, a novelette. There's like, I think there's a specific number which defines a, I'm sorry, not a novelette, novella. There's probably people cringing in their cars right now. Anyway, I'll figure that out later. But this short story is interesting because it is apparently like the first mention. It can't possibly be. It's got to be like the first, probably the first published um, mention of a natural satellite. So I was, I think I heard about this book. In fact, I know I did when I was reading an Arthur C. Clarke short story. I bought that. um, It's like all his short stories. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's honestly just the collected short stories of Arthur C. Clarke. And I'm going to be honest, there's some bad ones in there, but there's obviously some really good ones too. And there was one, I guess he wrote for Playboy a lot. And there was one um, which... I think he mentioned like that this inspired him or something or okay. No, here it is. It's because Arthur C. Clarke is credited with having written a paper. I think after um, world war two, I think it was in world war two and he wrote a paper on like uh, geocentric um, orbits where basically a satellite, a certain distance away from the earth, a satellite will stay over the same point of the earth. And I think, I I guess he is credited with maybe the first person that wrote a paper on that. And um, I think that's where I heard about this Brick Moon short story. Anyway, uh, it's a really interesting idea for a book. I'm really interested in it. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, Hope you like it. The Brick Moon by Edward E. Hale, 1869. 1. Preparation I have no sort of objection now to telling the whole story. The subscribers, of course, have a right to know what became of their money. The astronomers may as well know all about it, before they announce any more asteroids with an enormous movement in declination. And experimenters on the longitude may as well know, so that they may act advisedly in attempting another brick moon or in refusing to do so. It all began more than 30 years ago when we were in college, as most good things begin. We were studying in the book, which has gray sides and a green back, and is called Cambridge Astronomy, 
because it is translated from the French. We came across this business of the longitude, and as we talked, in the gloom and glamour of the old South Middle Dining Hall, we had going the usual number of students' stories about rewards offered by the Board of Longitude for discoveries in that matter. Stories, all of which, so far as I know, are lies. Like all boys, we had tried our hands at perpetual motion. For me, I was sure I could square the circle, if they would give me chalk enough. But as to this business of the longitude, it was reserved for Q, to make the happy hit and to explain it to the rest of us. I wonder if I can explain it to an unlearned world, which has not studied the book with gray sides and a green cambric back. Let us try. You know then, dear world, that when you look at the North Star, it always appears to you at just the same height above the horizon or what is between you and the horizon. Say, the Dwight Schoolhouse, or the houses in Concord Street, or to me, just now, North College. You know also that, if you were to travel to the North Pole, the North Star would be just over your head. And, if you were to travel to the equator, it would be just on your horizon, if you could see it at all through the red, dusty, hazy mist in the North, as you could not. If you were just halfway between pole and equator, on the line between us and Canada, the North Star would be halfway up, or 45 degrees from the horizon. So you would know that you were 45 degrees from the equator. Then in Boston, you would find it was 42 degrees 20 minutes from the horizon. So you would know that you are 42 degrees 20 minutes from the equator. At Seattle again, you would find it was 47 degrees, 40 minutes high. So our friends at Seattle know that they are 47 degrees, 40 minutes from the equator. The latitude of a place, in other words, is found very easily by any observation which shows how high the North Star is. If you do not want to measure the North Star, you may take any star when it is just to the north of you and measure its height. Wait 12 hours, and if you can find it, Measure its height again, split the difference, and that is the altitude of the pole, or the latitude of you, the observer. Of course we know this, says the graduating world. Do you suppose this is what we borrow from your book, for to have you spell out your miserable elementary astronomy? At which rebuff, I should shrink distressed, but that a chorus of voices an octave higher comes up with. Dear Mr. Ingham, we are ever so much obliged to you. We did not know it at all before, and you make it perfectly clear. Thank you, my dear, and you, and you. We will not care what the others say. If you do understand it, or do know it, it is more than Mr. Charles Reed knew, or he would not have made his two lovers on the island guess at their latitude, as they did. If they had either of them been educated at a respectable academy for the middle classes, they would have fared better. Now about the longitude. The latitude, which you have found, measures your distance north or south from the equator or the pole. To find your longitude, you want to find your distance east or west from the meridian of Greenwich. Now, if anyone would build a good tall tower at Greenwich, straight into the sky, say a hundred miles into the sky, of course, if you and I were east or west of it, and could see it, 
We could tell how far east or west we were by measuring the apparent height of the tower above our horizon. If we could see so far, when the lantern with the Drummond's light ever so bright on the very top of the tower appeared to be on our horizon, we should know we were 873 miles away from it. The top of the tower would answer for us as the North Star does when we are measuring the latitude. If we were nearer, our horizon would make a longer angle with the line from the top of our place of vision. If we were farther away, we should need a higher tower. But nobody will build any such tower at Greenwich, or elsewhere on that meridian, or on any meridian. You see, that to be of use to the half the world nearest to it, it would have to be so high that the diameter of the world would seem nothing in proportion. And then, for the other half of the world, you would have to erect another tower as high on the other side. It was this difficulty that made Q suggest the expedient of the brick moon. For you see, that if, by good luck, there were a ring like Saturn's which stretched around the world, above Greenwich and the meridian of Greenwich, and if it would stay above Greenwich, turning with the world, anyone who wanted to measure its longitude or distance from Greenwich would look out the window and see how high this ring was above the horizon. At Greenwich, it would be over his head exactly. At New Orleans, which is quarter round the world from Greenwich, it would be just in his horizon. A little west of New Orleans, you would begin to look for the other half of the ring on the west instead of the east. And if you went a little west of the Fiji Islands, the ring would be over your head again. So if we only had a ring like that, not round the equator of the world, as Saturn's ring is around Saturn, but vertical to the plane of the equator, as the brass ring of an artificial globe goes, only far higher in proportion. From that ring, said Q, pensively, we could calculate the longitude. Failing that, after various propositions, he suggested the brick moon. The plan was this. If from the surface of the earth, by a gigantic pea shooter, you could shoot a pea upward from Greenwich, aimed northward as well as upward. If you drove it so fast and far that when its power of ascent was exhausted and it began to fall, it should clear the earth and pass outside the North Pole. If you had given it sufficient power to get it half around the earth without touching, that pea would clear the earth forever. It would continue to rotate above the North Pole above the Fiji Island place, above the South Pole and Greenwich, forever, with the impulse with which it had first cleared our atmosphere and attraction. If only we could see that P as it revolved in that convenient orbit, then we could measure the longitude from that, as soon as we knew how high the orbit was, as well as if it were the ring of Saturn. But a P is so small. Yes, said Q, but we must make a large P. Then we fell to work on plans for making the pea very large and very light. Large, that it might be seen far away by storm-tossed navigators. Light, that it might be the easier blown 4,000 and odd miles into the air. Lest it should fall on the heads of the Greenlanders or the Patagonians. Lest it should be injured and the world lose its new moon. But, of course, all this lath and plaster had to be given up. For the motion through the air would set fire to this moon just as it does to other aerolites, and all your lath and plaster would gather into a few white drops, which no Rosé telescope could even discern. 
No, said Q bravely. At the least, it must be very substantial. It must stand fire well, very well. Iron will not answer. It must be brick. We must have a brick moon. Then we had to calculate its size. You can see on the old moon an edifice 200 feet long with any of the fine refractors of our day. But no such refractors as those can be carried by the poor little fishermen whom we wanted to befriend, the bones of whose ships lie white on so many cliffs, their names unreported at any Lloyd's or by any Ross, themselves the owners and their sons the crew. On the other hand, we did not want our moon 250,000 miles away, as the old moon is, which I will call the Thornbush moon, for distinction. We did not care how near it was, indeed, if it were only far enough away to be seen and practice from almost the whole world. There must be a little strip where they could not see it from the surface, unless we threw it indefinitely high. But they need not look from the surface, said Q. They might climb to the masthead, and if they did not see it at all, they would know that they were 90 degrees from the meridian. This difficulty about what we call the strip, however, led to an improvement in the plan, which made it better in every way. It was clear that even if the strip were quite wide, the moon would have to be a good way off, and, in proportion, hard to see. If, however, we would satisfy ourselves with a moon 4,000 miles away, that could be seen on Earth's surface for three or 4,000 miles on each side. And twice 3,000, or 6,000, is one-fourth of the largest circumference of the Earth. We did not dare have it any nearer than 4,000 miles, since even at that distance it would be eclipsed three hours out of every night. And we wanted it bright and distinct, and not of that lurid copper eclipse color. But at 4,000 miles distance, the moon could be seen by a belt of observers six or 8,000 miles in diameter. Start then two moons. This was my contribution to the plan. Suppose one over the meridian of Greenwich and the other over that of New Orleans. Take care that there is a little difference in the radii of their orbits, lest they collide some foul day. Then, in most places, one or the other, perhaps two will come in sight. So much less the risk of clouds, and everywhere there may be one, except when it is cloudy. Neither need be more than 4,000 miles off so much the larger and more beautiful they will be. If on the old Thornbush moon, old Herschel with his reflector could see a townhouse 200 feet long, on the brick moon, young Herschel will be able to see a dab of mortar a foot and a half long, if he wants to. And people without the reflector, with their opera glasses, will be able to see sufficiently well. And to this they agreed, that eventually there must be two brick moons. Indeed, it were better that there should be four, as each must be below the horizon half the time. That is only as many as Jupiter has, but it was also agreed that we might begin with one. Why we settled on 200 feet of diameter, I hardly know. I think it was from the statement of dear John Farrers about the impossibility of there being a state house 200 feet long not yet discovered on the sunny side of Old Thornbush. That somehow made 200 our fixed point. Besides, a moon of 200 feet diameter did not seem quite unmanageable. Yet, it was evident that a smaller moon would be of no use, unless we meant to have them near the world, when there would be so many that they would be confusing, 
and eclipsed most of the time. And 4,000 miles is a good way off to see a moon even 200 feet in diameter. Small though we made them on paper, these 200-foot moons were still too much for us. Of course, we meant to build them hollow, but even if hollow, there must be some thickness, and the quantity of brick would at best be enormous. Then, to get them up. The pea shooter, of course, was only an illustration. It was long after that time that Rodman and other guns sent iron balls five or six miles in distance, say two miles, more or less, in height. Iron is much heavier than hollow brick, but you can build no gun with a bore of 200 feet now. Far less could you then, no. Q again suggested the method of shooting off to the moon. It was not to be by any of your sudden explosions. It was to be done as all great things are done by the gradual and silent accumulation of power. You all know that a flywheel, heavy, very heavy on the circumference, light, very light within it, was made to save up power. From the time when it was produced to the time when it was wanted, yes? Then, before we began even to build the moon, before we even began to make the brick, we would build two gigantic flywheels. The diameter of each should be ever so great. The circumference heavy beyond all precedent and thundering strong so that no temptation might burst it. They should revolve their edges nearly touching in opposite directions for years if it were necessary to accumulate power driven by some waterfall now wasted to the world. One should be a little heavier than the other. When the brick moon was finished and all was ready, It should be gently rolled down a gigantic groove provided for it, till it lighted on the edge of both wheels at the same instant. Of course, it would not rest there, not the ten-thousandth part of a second. It would be snapped upward as a drop of water from a grindstone, upward and upward, but the heavier wheel would have deflected it a little from the vertical. Upward and northward it would rise, therefore, till it had passed the axis of the world, It would, of course, feel the world's attraction all the time, which would bend its flight gently, but still it would leave the world more and more behind, upward still, but now southward, till it had traversed more than 180 degrees of a circle. Little resistance, indeed, after it had cleared the 40 or 50 miles of invisible atmosphere. Now let it fall, said Q, inspired with the vision. Let it fall, and the sooner the better. The curve it is now on will forever clear the world, and over the meridian of that lonely waterfall, if only we have rightly adjusted the gigantic flies, will forever revolve in its obedient orbit, the blessing of all seamen. As constant in all change as its older sister has been fickle, and the second cynosure of all lovers upon the waves, and of all girls left behind them. Amen, we cried. And then we sat in silence till the clock struck ten then shook each other gravely by the hand, and left the South Middle Dining Hall. Of waterfalls, there were plenty that we knew. Flywheels could be built out of oak and pine, and hooped with iron. Flywheels did not discourage us. But brick? One brick is, say, 64 cubic inches only. This moon, though we made it hollow, see, it must take 12 million brick. The brick alone will cost $60,000. The brick alone would cost $60,000. 
There the scheme of the brick moon hung, an airy vision, for seventeen years. The years that changed us from young men into men. The brick alone, $60,000. For to boys who have still left a few of their college bills unpaid, who cannot think of buying that lovely little Elsevier which Smith has for sale at auction, of which Smith does not dream of the value, $60,000 seems as intangible as 60 million sestertia. Clark, second, how many are 60 million sestertia stated in cowries? How much in currency gold being at 1.37 and a quarter? Right. Go up. Stop. I forget myself. So, to resume, the project of the brick moon hung in the ideal, an airy vision, a vision as lovely and as distant as the brick moon itself. At this calm moment of midnight when I write, as it poises itself over the shoulder of Orion in my southern horizon. Stop. I anticipate. Let me keep, as we say in Beatles' dime series, to the even current of my story. Seventeen years passed by. We were no longer boys, though we felt so. For myself, to this hour, I never entered board meeting, committee meeting, or synod without the queer question, what would happen should anyone discover that this bearded man was only a big boy disguised. That the frock coat and the round hat are none of mine, and that, if I should be spurned from the assembly as an interloper, a judicious public learning all the facts would give a verdict, served him right. This consideration helps me through many board meetings which would else be so dismal. What did my old copy say? Boards are made of wood. They are long and narrow. But we do not get on. Seventeen years later, I say, or should have said, Dear Orca entered my room at Naguadavik again. I had not seen him since the commencement day when we parted at Cambridge. He looked the same, and yet not the same. His smile was the same, his voice, his tender look of sympathy when I spoke to him of a great sorrow, his childlike love of fun. His waistband was different, his pantaloons were different, his smooth chin was buried in a full beard, and he weighed 200 pounds if he weighed a gram. Oh, the good time we had, so like the times of old. Those were happy days for me in Nagwadovic. At that moment, my double was at work for me in a meeting at the publishing committee of the Sandemarian Review. So I called Orkut up to my own snuggery, and we talked over old times. Talked till tea was ready. Polly came up through the orchard and made tea for us herself there. We talked on and on till nine, ten at night. And then it was that dear Orchid asked me if I remembered the brick moon. Remember it? Of course I did. And without leaving my chair, I opened the drawer on my writing desk and handed him a portfolio full of working drawings on which I had engaged myself for my third all that winter. Orchid was delighted. He turned them over hastily but intelligently and said, I am so glad. I could not think you had forgotten. And I have seen Bronnen, and Bronnen is not forgotten. Now do you know, he said, in all this railroading of mine, I have not forgotten? When I built the great tunnel for the Catawissa and Opelosis, by which we got rid of the old inclined plains, there was never a stone bigger than a peach stone within 200 miles of us. I baked the brick of that tunnel on the line with my own kilns. Ingram, I have made more brick, I believe than any man living in the world. You are a provincial man, I said. Am I not, Fred? 
More than that, he said, I have succeeded in things the world counts worth more than brick. I have made brick, and I have made money. One of us make money? I asked amazed. Even so, said dear Orcutt, one of us has made money, and he proceeded to tell me how. It was not in building tunnels, nor in making brick, no. It was by buying up the original stock of the Catawissa and Opelosis, at a moment when the stock had already a nominal price in the market. There were the mortgage bonds, and the second mortgage bonds, and the third, and I know not how much floating debt, and worse than all, the reputation of the road lost and the deservedly lost. Every locomotive it had was asthmatic. Every car it had bore the marks of unprecedented accidents, for which no one was to blame. Rival lines, I know not how many, were cutting each other's throats for its legitimate business. At this juncture, dear Georgie invested all his earnings as a contractor in the despised original stock. He actually bought it for three and a quarter percent, good shares that had cost a round hundred to every wretch who had subscribed. $6,800, every cent he had, did George thus invest. Then he went himself to the trustees of the first mortgage, to the trustees of the second, and to the trustees of the third, and told them what he had done. Now it is a personal presence that he moves the world. Dear Orchid has found that out since, if he did not know it before. The trustees, who would have sniffed had George written to them, turned around from their desks and begged him to take a chair when he came to talk with them. Had he put every penny he was worth into that stock? Then it was worth something which they did not know of, or George Orcutt was no fool about railroads. The man who bridged the lower rapidian when a freshet was running was no fool. What were his plans? George did not tell. No, not the Lordy trustees what his plans were. He had plans, but he kept them to himself. All he told them was that he had plans. On those plans, he had staked his all. Now, would they or would they not agree to put him in charge of the running of that road for 12 months on a nominal salary? The superintendent they had was a rascal. He had proved that by running away. They knew that George was not a rascal. He knew that he could make his road pay expenses, pay bondholders, and pay a dividend, a thing no one else had dreamed of for 20 years. Could they do better than try him? Of course they could not, and they knew they could not. Of course they sniffed and talked and waited and pretended they did not know, and that they must consult, and so forth and so on. But of course, they all did try him, on his own terms. He was put in charge of the running of the road. In one week, he showed he should redeem it. In three months, he did redeem it. He advertised boldly the first day, infant children at treble price. The novelty attracted instant remark, and it showed many things. First, it showed he was a humane man who wished to save human life. He would leave these innocents in their cradles where they belonged. Second, and chiefly, the world of travelers saw that Crichton and Amadis, the perfect cavalier of the future, had arisen, a railroad manager caring for the comfort of his passengers. In a week or two more, freight began to come in in driblets, on the line which its owners had gone over. As soon as the shops could turn them out, some cars were put on, with arms on which travelers could rest their elbows, with headrests where they could take naps if they were weary. These excited so much curiosity that one was exhibited in the museum at Catawissa and another at Opelosis. 
It may not be generally known that the received car of the American roads was devised to secure a premium offered by the Pawducket and Podunk Company. Their receipts were growing so large that they feared they should forfeit their charter. They advertised, therefore, for a car in which no man could sleep at night or rest by day, in which the backs should be straight, the heads of passengers unsupported, the feet entangled in a vice, the elbows always knocked by the passing conductor. The pattern was produced which immediately came into use on all the American roads. But on the Catawissa and Opelosas, this time-honored pattern was set aside. Of course you see the result. Men went hundreds of miles out of their way to ride on the C&O. The third mortgage was paid off. A reserve fund was piled up for the second. The trustees of the first lived in dread of being paid. And George's stock, which he bought at three and a quarter, rose to 147 before two years had gone by. So that was that. As we sat together in the snuggery, George was worth well nigh $300,000. Some of his eggs were in the basket where they were laid. Some he had taken out and placed in other baskets. Some in nests where various hens were brooding over them. Sound eggs they were, wherever placed. And such was the victory of which George had come to tell. One of us had made money. On his way, he had seen Bronnen. Bronnen, the pure-minded, right-minded, shifty man of tact, man of brain, man of heart, and man of word, who held the new Altona in the hollow of his hand. Bronnen had made no money. Not he, nor ever will. But Brannon can do much what he pleased in this world without money. For whenever Brannon studied the rights and the wrongs of any enterprise, all men knew that what Brannon decided about it was well-nigh the eternal truth. And therefore, all men of sense were accustomed to place great confidence in his prophecies. But more than this, and better, Brennan was an unconscious dog who believed in people. So when he knew what was the right and what was the wrong, he could stand up before two or three thousand people and tell them what was the right and what was the wrong, and tell them with the same simplicity and freshness with which he would talk to little Horace on his knee. Of the thousands who heard him, there would not be one in a hundred who knew that this was eloquence. They were fain to say, as they sat in their shops talking, that Brennan was not eloquent. Nay, they went so far as to regret that Brennan was not eloquent. If he were only as eloquent as Carker was, or Barker was, how excellent he would be. But when, a month after, it was necessary for them to do anything about the thing he had been speaking of, they did what Brennan had told them to do, forgetting, most likely, that he had ever told them and fancying that these were their own ideas, which, in fact, had, from his liquid, ponderous, transparent, and invisible common sense, distilled unconsciously into their being. I wonder whether Brannon ever knew that he was eloquent. What I knew, and what dear George knew, was that he was one of the leaders of men. Courage, my friends, we are steadily advancing to the brick moon. For George had stopped and seen Brannon, and Brannon had not forgotten. Seventeen years Brannon had remembered, and not a ship had been lost on the lee shore because her longitude was wrong. Not a baby had wailed its last as it was ground between wrecked spar and cruel rock. Not a swollen corpse unknown had been flung upon the sand and been buried with a nameless epitaph. But Brannon had recollected the brick moon, and had, in the memory chamber which rejected nothing, stored away the story of the horror. And now, George was ready to consecrate a round hundred thousand to the building of the moon, 
And Brannon was ready, in the thousand ways in which wise men move the people to and fro, to persuade them to give us a hundred thousand more. And George had come to ask me, if I were not ready to undertake with them the final great effort, of which our old calculations were the embryo. For this, I was now to contribute the mathematical certainty and the lore borrowed from naval science, which should blossom and bear fruit when the brick moon was snapped like a cherry from the ways on which it was built, was launched into the air by power gathered from a thousand freshets, and poised at last in its own pre-calculated region of the ether, should begin its course of eternal blessings in one unchanging meridian. Vision of Beneficence and Wonder Of course I consented. Oh, that you were not so eager for the end. Oh, that I might tell you what now you will never know. Of the great campaign we then and there inaugurated. How the horrible loss of the royal martyr, whose longitude was three degrees awry, started the whole world and gave us a point to start from. How I explained to George that he must not subscribe to $100,000 in a moment. It must come in bits when the cause needed a stimulus or the public needed encouragement. How we caught neophyte editors and explained to them enough to make them think the moon was well nigh their own invention and their own thunder. How, beginning in Boston, we sent round to all men of science, all those of philanthropy, and all those of commerce, 3,000 circulars, inviting them to a private meeting at George's parlors at the Revere. How, besides ourselves, and some nice, respectable-looking old gentleman Brannon had brought over from Podunk with him, paying their fares both ways, There were present only three men, all adventurers whose projects had failed, besides the representatives of the press. How, of these representatives, some understood the whole, and some understood nothing. How, the next day, all gave us first-rate notices. How, a few days after, in the lower horticulture hall, we had our first public meeting. How, Halliburton brought us 50 people who loved him his Bible class, most of them, to help fill up. How, besides these, there were not three persons whom we had not asked personally, or one who could invent an excuse to stay away. How, we had hung the walls with the intelligible and unintelligible diagrams. How I opened the meeting. Of that meeting, indeed, I must tell something. First, I spoke. I did not pretend to unfold the scheme. I did not attempt any rhetoric but I did not make any apologies. I told them simply of the dangers of lee shores. I told them when they were most dangerous, when seamen came upon them unawares. I explained to them that, though the costly chronometer, frequently adjusted, made a delusive guide to the voyager who often made a harbor, still the adjustment was treacherous, the instrument beyond the use of the poor, and that, once astray, its error increased forever. I said that we believed we had a method which, if the means were supplied for the experiment, would give the humblest fisherman the very certainty of sunrise and of sunset in his calculations of his place upon the world. And I said that, whenever a man knew his place in this world, it was always likely all would go well. Then I sat down. Then dear George spoke, simply but very briefly. He said he was a stranger to the Boston people, and that those who knew him at all knew he was not a talking man. He was a civil engineer, and his business was to calculate and to build, and not to talk. But he had come here to say that he had studied this new plan for the longitude from the top to the bottom, and that he believed in it through and through. There was his opinion. 
if that was worth anything to anybody. If that meeting resolved to go forward with the enterprise, or if anybody proposed to, he should offer his services in any capacity and without any pay for its success. If he might only work as a bricklayer, he would work as a bricklayer. For he believed on his soul that the success of this enterprise promised more for mankind than any enterprise which was ever likely to call for the devotion of his life. And to the good of mankind, he said, very simply, my life is devoted. Then he sat down. Then Brannon got up. Up to this time, excepting that George had dropped this hint about bricklaying, nobody had said a word about the moon, far less hinted what it was to be made of. So Ben had the hole to open. He did it as if he had been talking to a bright boy of 10 years old. He made those people think that he respected them as his equals. But, in fact, he chose every word, as if not one of them knew anything. He explained as if it were rather more simple to explain than to take for granted. But he explained as if, were they talking, they might be explaining to him. He led them from point to point, oh, so much more clearly than I have been leading you, till, as their mouths dropped a little open in their eager interest, and their lids forgot to wink in their gaze upon his face, and so their eyebrows seemed a little lifted in curiosity. Till, I say, each man felt as if they were himself the inventor, who had bridged difficulty after difficulty, as if, indeed, the whole were too simple to be called difficult or complicated. The only wonder was that the Board of Longitude, or the Emperor Napoleon, or the Smithsonian, or somebody, had not sent this little planet on its voyage of blessing long before. Not a syllable that you would have called rhetoric, not a word that you would have thought prepared. And then Brannon sat down. That was Ben Brannon's way. For my part, I liked it better than eloquence. And then I got up again. We would answer any questions, I said. We represented people who were eager to go forward with this work. Alas, except Q. All of those represented were on the stage. We could not go forward without the general assistance of the community. It was not an enterprise which the government could be asked to favor. It was not an enterprise which would yield one penny of profit to any human being. We had, therefore, purely on the grounds of its benefit to mankind, brought it before an assembly of Boston men and women. Then there was a pause, and we could hear our watches tick and our hearts beat. Dear George asked me in a whisper if he should say anything more, but I thought not. The pause became painful, and then Tom Coram, Prince of Merchants, rose. Had any calculation been made of the probable cost of the experiment of one moon? I said the calculations were on the table. The brick alone would cost $60,000. Mr. Orcutt had computed that $214,729 would complete two flywheels and one moon. This made no allowance for whitewashing the moon, which was not strictly necessary. The flywheels and water power would be equally valuable for the succeeding moons, if any were attempted, and therefore the second moon could be turned off, it was hoped, for $159,732. Thomas Coram had been standing all the time I spoke, and in an instant he said, I am no mathematician, but I have had a ship ground to pieces under me on the lack of dives because our chronometer was wrong. You need $250,000 to build your first moon? 
I will be one of 20 men to furnish the money, or I will pay $10,000 tomorrow for this purpose, to any person who may be named as treasurer, to be repaid to me if the moon is not finished this day, 20 years. That was as long a speech as Tom Quorum ever made. But it was pointed. The small audience tapped applause. Orkut looked at me, and I nodded. I will be another of the 20 men, he cried. And I another, said an old bluff Englishman, whom nobody had invited, who proved to be a Mr. Robert Bull, a Sheffield man, who came in from curiosity. He stopped after the meeting, said he should leave the country next week, and I have never seen him since, but his bill of exchange came all the same. That was all the public subscribing, enough more than we had hoped for. We tried to make Coram treasurer, but he refused. We had to make Halliburton treasurer, though we should have liked a man better known than he was. Then we adjourned. Some nice ladies then came up and gave one a dollar and one five dollars and one fifty and so on. And some men who have stuck by ever since. I always, in my own mind, call each of those women Demarius and each of those men Dionysus. But those are not their real names. How I am wasting time on an old story. Then some of these ladies came the next day and proposed a fair. And out of that, six months after, grew the great longitude fair that you will all remember, if you went to it, I am sure. And the papers the next day gave us first-rate reports. And then, two by two, with our subscription books, we went at it. But I must not tell the details of that subscription. There were two or three men who subscribed $5,000 each, because they were perfectly certain the amount would never be raised. They wanted, for once, to get the credit of liberality for nothing. There were many men and many women who subscribed from $1 up to $1,000, not because they cared a straw for the longitude, nor because they believed in the least in the project, but because they believed in Brannon, in Orkut, in Q, or in me. Love goes far in this world of ours. Some few men subscribed because others had done it. It was the thing to do, and they must not be out of fashion. And three or four, at least, subscribed because each hour of their lives there came up the memory of the day when the news came that the blank was lost, George or Harry or John, in the blank. And they knew that George or Harry or John might have been at home, had it been easier than it is to read the courses of the stars. Fair, subscriptions, and Orkut's reserve, we counted up $162,000, or nearly so. There would be a little more when it was all paid in, but we could not use a cent except Orkut's and our own little subscriptions till we had got the whole. And at this point, it seemed as if the whole world was sick of us, and that we had gathered every penny that was in store for us. The orange was squeezed dry. All right, what'd you think of that? Part one of The Brick Moon. Okay, so... (laughs) I don't really have anything to say about... No, I'm joking. Uh, Okay, so basically, we talked a little bit about the the time that this was written. 18... uh, When was it? 1869, I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, Just to give you a little background... Uh, Neptune 
was discovered, which is the last of the planets, was discovered in 1846. Of course, Pluto was discovered after that, which they called a planet for a while. Anyway, all the big planets had been discovered. The Civil War had ended four years before. So this was before Einstein. This was before they knew that those smudges that they'd see in the sky were actually galaxies made up of, you know, billions and billions of stars. They mention an astronomer, Herschel, uh, and I believe they're talking about John Herschel, which is William Herschel's son. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's John because John Herschel died in 1871. And so basically very shortly after this uh, story was written. And anyway, he had a giant telescope. And so I think he was pretty well known um, at that time. Uh, so anyway, that was interesting. Um, okay, here's what I love about this guy, uh, Edward Everett Hale, which, by the way, I guess I guess it's supposed to be himself is the main character. I don't think it ever said, like, I don't think it ever said Edward, you know. I mean, I guess why would you refer to yourself like that in the book? But I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be him. What I liked about his explanations of the whole thing at the beginning. He kind of thinks like me. He thinks in extremes. So if I'm presented with a problem, I'll often think of the most extreme example on both ends of the spectrum. And based on that, I can kind of, I don't know, figure out where, you know, I think most things end up in the middle somewhere. But it helps to think in extremes. Uh, here's an example. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted once, it was like a month ago, that constellations don't look anything like they look to us seen from the other side. I might be getting that quote a little bit wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And I started thinking about it. Okay, the idea there being that, you know, stars aren't all the same distance from us in, you know, the constellation Orion those stars aren't on a flat surface. You know, they're not all the same distance away from us. It's just from our perspective, it looks like a, a hunter with a bow or whatever. And so I thought, okay, so on the other side, you're telling me that doesn't look the same? So I think the answer to that solution is, okay, so what I did is I, I, I imagine the constellation at a certain distance. And then I go way, way, way far back, even farther back than we are on planet Earth. You know, how does that change? Well, I think it it probably does change, but the further you go back, the less it change it changes. And then if we go toward it and we go, you know, closer than we are from the earth, yes, it's going to it's going to change because one star is going to be right up in our grill and another star is is not going to be forward anymore, it's going to be up, you know? Um so basically if you, th if you think of the both extremes right up on it and way far away, basically the solution I came up with is that the change is dependent on how far away you are from it. If we were infinitely away from a constellation, I think it would look basically exactly the same on the other side, infinitely far away. But if we're very close to the constellation, I think uh, it may indeed look very different um, on the other side. So anyway, I thought uh, basically he was giving extremes. <laughs> yeah, why did I even explain all this? Okay, because 
um, when he is explaining how navigation works, um, okay, the first thing he does is he explains about latitude. Okay, latitude, I always remember, are like the rungs of a ladder. So it goes from, you know, they're the lines on the planet that go that start out at zero on the equator and it goes up to 90 degrees uh, at the North Pole. Um, and so what he says, if if you were on the North Pole, the North Star would be right above you. And if you're on the equator, it would be on the horizon, he says. I think it also helps to think of the Earth as a flat surface in this. <laughs> I'm not a flat earther, but um, if it was a flat surface and basically the flat surface, you could walk. It, it, it's uh, dividing the Earth in half and you could walk to the North Star on this flat surface. Now, you know what? That doesn't help, actually. <laughs> forget forget what I just said. Anyway, on the equator, you can, uh, you would, if you could see through the atmosphere, you would see the North Star on the horizon. Anyway, you know, he takes the two extremes and he says, well, if you're, if you're at 40, if you're at the 45th degree latitude, then it would be 45 degrees from the horizon. And then he says, okay, well, so how do we determine the longitude? The longitude is the harder thing to, uh, to determine. So those are the lines going from the North Pole to the South Pole. And basically he said, okay, well, if someone built a tower tall enough on Greenwich, for example, and it was a known height, and I think he said um, 100 miles into the sky, right? It's unbelievable, but we're talking extremes, right? Uh, so basically, if it's a known height, as you traveled away from it, let's say you just, you know, travel one mile away from a hundred mile tower to look at the top, you'd be looking straight up basically. But as you keep getting further and further away, you're not going to have to look up as high. So basically it's just a trigonometry problem. You, if you, if, if you can measure the angle, uh, that you have to look up to look at the top of the tower. Um, and you know how tall that tower is, 100 miles, right? Uh, then it's, you know, so Katoa. Um, I don't know which one that is. <laughs> it's a trigonometry problem, though. Hold on. Uh, I'm going to figure this out. It's sine hypotenuse adjacent, right? So that one is, oh, wait. Hypotenuse is the longest one. Adjacent, it's not adjacent. So it's the, it's the opposite, opposite. So we have opposite. So sine, this is ridiculous. I can't do it. Not when I'm re recording a podcast anyway, but it's one of them. And that should give you um, the distance, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> between you and the tower. Anyway, basically no one's going to do that, right? You can't build a hundred um, mile high tower. So his idea was a, a moon. If if we have basically a moon, and and mind you, this moon that he's imagining is going is orbiting the Earth pole to pole. Okay, when he mentioned um, if the Earth only had rings like the rings of Saturn, he he corrected. Basically, he made sure you understood that not like Saturn has, but rings going over the north and south pole basically tilted, you know, 90 degrees. Basically, if we had that and we knew the, the 
you know, distance away from the earth that it was, then that would work just as fine. But we don't have that. So his idea was a brick moon. Anyway, I really liked um, that, you know, hey, have you ever heard the word Gedanken experiment? <laughs> I just learned that recently. And um, I really like it. It's basically just thought experiment in German. But I guess um, scientists will like say Gedanken experiment. Just <laughs> I think Einstein might have coined it. I don't know. Uh, that's probably all wrong. Anyway, um, okay. And I want to read one line that I really liked from this. Uh, I really liked when he said, because I can relate to it, <laughs> uh, 17 years passed by. We were no longer boys, though we felt so. For myself, to this hour, I never enter a board meeting, committee meeting, or synod without the queer question, what would happen should anyone discover that this bearded man was only a big boy disguised? <laughs> Loved it. Um, you know, I don't know if it'll help to uh, review the characters so far. There, there's only a couple. Um, and honestly, I don't think it's very important that you, like, remember, you know, who they are or that much about them. But basically, we've got uh, George Orkut. Um, he's the one who made the money. We've got Ben Brannan. Uh, apparently, he is kind of like people trust him. Um, so I think he helped uh, bring some investors into this. Um, Q is the brother of the narrator. He's like the brains behind uh, this idea. And then we've got Halliburton, who is a priest, and he is the treasurer. So I guess he holds, I guess maybe they trusted him the most. So he's holding the money. Anyway, I thought it did trail off, you know, toward the end, talking about all the train business and how he made the money. And honestly, I was kind of thinking, should I abridge this story? You know, maybe cut this out and... um get it all in one episode, because this, is, by the way, is going to be um, multiple episodes. This is a four-part story. Uh, so we got much more to come. Uh, anyway, I decided not to. I, I didn't find it terribly boring, but just, you know, I, not as exciting as the science and um, thought experiments that they were doing in the beginning. So there you have it. The uh, plans are laid. And next episode, hopefully we start building this brick moon. If you want to tweet at me, please do so. Wet Josh is my handle, W-E-T-J-O-S-H. You can tell me how bad I am at trigonometry or um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just tell me if you liked the uh, story or not. Okay, that's a wrap. The plans are laid. It's time to start building this thing. I'll be back next time with part two of The Brick Moon. <laughs>